This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Where is he? Can you see him? At the front, behind the bald guy. The little skinny fellow with the glasses. That's Leo Frank? He doesn't look like a child killer. Oh, he's guilty, all right. The factory sweeper said he stood guard at the door when he molested poor Mary Fagan, then helped to move the body. How could this Yankee bastard not have killed her? That's just a sweeper story. How do we know he's not making the whole thing up? Order, order! Is the prosecution ready? Yes, Your Honor. The Northerners would love to see this vile man walk the streets, but we'll be sure to put him in the ground where- Objection! He's presuming guilt before the trial even starts! Any reasonable person would presume guilt in this case, as evidenced by the upstanding citizens of Georgia gathered here. Objection, objection! Judge, please stop this! They've clearly gone beyond the point of objectivity. Order, order. Now I must ask the defense to avoid outbursts like this in the future. Outbursts? The integrity of this trial depends on objectivity. Is the defense ready? (sighs) Yes, Your Honor. Then we will commence with the people of the state of Georgia versus Leo M. Frank. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our second episode on the murder of 13-year-old factory worker Mary Fagan and the trial of Leo Frank. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, so let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. On April 27, 1913, the body of Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old girl, was found in the basement of a National Pencil Company factory in Atlanta, Georgia. She had been strangled, dragged through the mud, 
robbed, and potentially violated. Her murder quickly became known to the public as one of the most vile crimes to have ever taken place within Atlanta city limits. Police suspicion fell on two suspects in particular, Leo M. Frank, the superintendent of the factory and Mary Fagan's boss, and Jim Conley, a janitor who was known to be at the factory at the time. Investigators initially suspected Leo Frank as he had been the last known person to have seen Mary Fagan alive. And other circumstantial evidence left the police with some reasonable suspicion that he might have been connected to the crime. However, they had been unable to find concrete evidence that linked Leo directly to the murder. So investigators turned their attention away from him, but soon caught a break when a factory worker noticed Jim Conley washing blood out of his clothing shortly after the murder. Police arrested Jim Conley and began interrogating him. They specifically asked him about the poorly written notes that had been left at the scene of the crime. Jim initially claimed that he was illiterate, but Leo Frank soon proved to the police that Jim was lying by showing them factory ledgers that Jim himself had written. Police then got Jim Conley to rewrite the notes and found that Jim's handwriting was a perfect match for the writing found on the notes. Not only had police caught Jim in a blatant lie, but they had found concrete evidence linking him to the scene of the crime. It seemed they had found their murderer. They pressed Jim for a confession, but Jim was unwilling to take the fall. Instead of admitting to the murder, Jim told police that he had simply been a willing accomplice to Leo Frank himself. Jim claimed that Leo had paid him to guard the door while Leo assaulted Mary then also claimed that Leo had asked him to help hide the body. Once the body was moved, Jim said that Leo had forced him to write the notes in an effort to frame another worker for the murder. Jim Conley's startling confession had become a dark accusation. However, rather than consider the possibility that Jim Conley was lying to make someone else take the fall for his actions, the police took Jim's accusation as a direct confirmation of their initial suspicions and biases against Leo Frank. To make matters worse, the newspapers in the city did not care about the nuances of the evidence for and against Leo Frank. Instead, they only cared that Leo was a Jewish man who had moved to Atlanta from the north And that made Leo two of the things that many Atlantans despised most at the time. And the rabid anti-Semitism and anti-Northern sentiment among the newsmen of the city pushed them to publish article after article directly accusing Leo of murder. The constant anti-Semitic news cycle whipped the people of Atlanta into a frenzy as they howled for justice for the murder of Mary Fagan. Largely due to the pressure of the public, The police arrested Leo Frank and pushed for him to be tried for murder. Extra! Extra! Jury picked to try Leo Frank. The trial of the century begins today. On July 28, 1913, a crowd of thousands gathered outside Atlanta's city hall. They spilled into the street, blocking trolleys and stalling traffic for miles, oftentimes chanting for the death of Leo Frank screaming lines like, kill the Jew. Despite the 90-degree heat, the mood was one of palpable excitement for the trial that was about to begin. For the past three months, 
Atlantans had closely followed the murder case of Mary Fagan, a 13-year-old child laborer who had been found murdered in the basement of the National Pencil Company on April 26th. Now, after months of questions and mystery, there was hope that the girl's killer would finally be brought to justice. Inside City Hall, several hundred spectators and witnesses piled into a cramped second-floor courtroom. Large ozonators, the precursors to air conditioners, pumped in fresh air in an attempt to keep the oppressive heat at bay. The attorneys on each side of the aisle were titans in their own right. Leading the prosecution was Solicitor General Hugh Dorsey. Since his appointment three years earlier, Dorsey had suffered an embarrassing string of courtroom losses and was desperate for a high-profile win to rehabilitate his image. Leo Frank's lead defense attorney was Luther Rosser, one of the most famous and sought-after lawyers in the state. Rosser was a bald, heavy man with a bombastic personality who famously refused to wear a tie to court. The Honorable Judge Leonard Roan oversaw the proceedings. Solicitor Dorsey, you may call your first witness. Your Honor, the state calls Mrs. Fanny Coleman. The prosecution began by calling the mother of Mary Fagan. The grieving mother took the stand in a black dress and veil. Mrs. Coleman, when did you last see your daughter alive? On April 26th, in my home. When did she get up? Around 11 o'clock. I made her a breakfast of cabbage and biscuits. I asked what she was going to get up to. She had on her nice violet dress and her silver mesh purse. Is this the dress you're referring to? While the mother had been speaking, a clerk had been busy setting out items that had been found at the crime scene. Mrs. Coleman's eyes fell on her daughter's torn and bloody dress. She burst into tears. (laughs) Oh, my little girl. (laughs) My poor sweet Mary. (laughs) I apologize, Mrs. Coleman. No further questions. The emotional display had done its job. Everyone in the courtroom, from the spectators to the judge and jury, were reminded of the grief and pain that had been sown by Mary Fagan's killer. The only person in the courtroom who seemed unaffected was Leo Frank. The thin, spectacled superintendent sat beside Luther Rosser with his wife Lucille and his mother Ray behind him. His eyes constantly flitted to the jury box and the faces of the 12 men who would decide his fate. Next, Dorsey called Newt Lee, the night watchman who had discovered Mary Fagan's body. Dorsey asked him how Leo Frank seemed when Newt Lee saw him on Saturday, April 26th. He came to the door rubbing his hands. He said he was sorry I'd come so early. I said I was sorry too. I needed some sleep. I would have slept at the factory, but he said go out in town and have a good time. Newt Lee was followed by Detective John Black, who had been attached to the case since its inception. Detective Black recounted how the superintendent had seemed strangely on edge on the morning of April 27th. Mr. Frank's necktie seemed to be causing him considerable trouble. It seemed like he was too nervous to tie the thing. I told him we were in a rush and needed to get to the factory. How did he respond? He just kept on insisting on getting a cup of coffee. I told him that I'd been roused at 4 o'clock in the morning and hadn't had any coffee or breakfast either. Over the course of several days, Dorsey painstakingly laid out the prosecution's theory of the case. 
Mary Fagan, he believed, had arrived at the factory at about 12 o'clock on April 26th. She had gone to Leo Frank's office on the second floor to collect her paycheck. Then, the superintendent had lured her into the metal room next to his office where he assaulted and killed her. To support this premise, he presented hairs that had been found on a metal lathe inside the room and a red stain on the floor. To solidify his timeline, he offered a jar of partially digested cabbage that had been taken from Mary Fagan's stomach, which, according to an expert witness, showed that the girl had been murdered around the same time that she had visited Leo Frank's office. Finally, it was time for the prosecution to call its star witness. All eyes followed Jim Conley as he was led into the courtroom. The National Pencil Factory sweeper had become a central figure in the case since detectives had matched his handwriting to a pair of strange notes found at the scene of the crime. While Conley had eventually admitted to writing the notes, he maintained that they had been dictated to him by Leo Frank. The prosecution had fitted Conley with a new suit and a fresh haircut. They had spent weeks preparing him for the trial, instructing him on how to maintain eye contact with the jury and judge and how to avoid falling into the defense's traps. Whether thanks to this preparation or his own charisma, Conley was a magnetic presence from the moment he took the stand. Mr. Conley, what did Leo Frank say to you when you arrived at the factory on April 26th? He said he wanted me to watch for him like I had on other Saturdays. And what was it you'd done for him on other Saturdays? Objection, Your Honor. This is immaterial. Overruled. I'll ask again, Jim. What did you do for Mr. Frank on other Saturdays? I watched the front door for him while he was upstairs talking to young ladies. Order! And what happened that Saturday when he was done talking to the young lady? I heard Mr. Frank whistle, so I unlocked the door like he said and went upstairs. Mr. Frank was shivering and rubbing his hands together and acting funny. He had a a long, wide piece of cord, and his eyes, his eyes was large and wild. Did he say anything to you? He said, I wanted to be with a little girl, and she refused me. And I struck her, and and I guess I struck her too hard, and she fell and hit her head. The jury and spectators hung on Conley's every word as he walked them through the lurid details of the story. He described how he had helped Leo Frank take the body down into the basement, and then how Leo Frank had dictated the notes he hoped would draw attention to another employee. Mr. Frank asked me if I could write, and I said I could. He gave me a scratch pad and told me to write on there. A long, tall black fellow did this by himself. Why did you go along with all this? Why didn't you refuse to help or go to the police? Well, him being a white man and my superior, I thought I should do what he said. And Mr. Frank said he would pay me $200 if I would keep quiet. So I wrote the notes like he asked. When I finished writing, Mr. Frank looked up and said, Why should I hang? I have wealthy people in Brooklyn. Order! Order! Luther Rosser, Frank's defense attorney, had patiently waited his turn to question Conley, a moment that he knew would be the cornerstone of his case. If he was going to convince the jury that Leo Frank was innocent, he would have to show that it was not Frank, but Conley, who had murdered Mary Fagan. 
Since his arrest, Conley had written four different sworn affidavits, each with wildly different versions of what had transpired on April 26th. He had at first told the police he couldn't read nor write. Then, when caught in the lie, admitted that he could write. And finally, after being pressed, admitted that he had written the two notes found next to Mary's corpse. Rosser began his interrogation by pointing out the many inconsistencies in these lies and in many other versions of events he had told the police. One thing that confuses me, Jim. At police headquarters, you told Black and Scott that you got up at 9.30 on the morning of the 26th. Yes, sir. But that wasn't so, was it? No. You lied, didn't you? You lied all the way around. I told some stories, I'll admit. You looked them straight in the face and lied. No, sir. I hung my head. For eight hours, the legendary lawyer grilled Jim Conley, hoping to expose some chink in his new story. But whenever he pressed on a specific lie or change in his story, Conley claimed that he was unable to remember what his initial statement had been or what had inspired him to change it. To the spectators, this seemed perfectly in line with their racist expectations of Conley. They saw him only as an ignorant, uneducated black man whose lies had fallen away in the face of diligent police interrogation. The fact that an attorney, the likes of Luther Rosser, could not break Conley now merely proved that he was at last telling the truth. The only new insight Rosser would get was the admission that Conley was responsible for the feces in the basement. The sweeper casually admitted to having defecated in the elevator shaft on the morning of April 26th. When Conley emerged from the courthouse after hours of testimony, he was met with applause and screams of adulation. Overnight, the factory sweeper had become an Atlantan celebrity, and the entire city, it seemed, had turned against Leo Frank. But Rosser was far from finished. Over the next three weeks, from the end of April to the middle of May, he systematically worked to tear holes in Dorsey's version of the case, starting with the premise that Mary Fagan had been killed in the second-floor metal room. For every piece of evidence that the prosecution had offered, Rosser had an answer. The strands of hair were not a match for Mary Fagan and were more likely from another girl. The red stain had not been proven to be blood, and if it was, another employee had cut themselves in the metal room a short time before. Next, Rosser questioned the assumed motive. The county physician and several medical experts testified that there had not been enough evidence to substantiate whether or not Mary Fagan had been sexually violated. And there were several items missing from the crime scene that Leo Frank would not have taken. Mary Fagan's silver mesh purse and paycheck had still not been found. From here, Luther Rosser presented his own theory of what had occurred on April 26th. Jim Conley had spent the day drinking and gambling outside the factory until he had run out of money and liquor. Desperate to get his hands on more of both, he waited in the factory lobby for one of the girls who he knew would be coming in to collect their paychecks. When Mary Fagan came down the stairs, Conley attacked her, striking a blow to the side of her skull. It was then an easy task to carry the dazed girl down through the trapdoor into the basement, where he strangled her to death with a piece of cord found amidst the piles of rubbish. 
Then, motivated by panic and the desire to draw attention to another co-worker, Conley quickly scratched out the garbled murder notes before making off with Mary Fagan's purse and paycheck of $1.20. Luther Rosser effectively undermined every piece of physical evidence the prosecution had brought, leaving the jury with Jim Conley's word against Leo Franks. Many assumed that because Jim Conley was black, the jury would naturally side with Leo Frank. Never before in Atlanta's history had the testimony of an African-American been used to bring charges against a white man. But there was more at play than the Southern racial tensions between whites and blacks. Conley may have been a second-class citizen, but he was also a native Atlantan. Leo Frank, a college-educated Jewish man from Brooklyn, was an outsider. For many Georgians, he represented the forces of northern industrialism they blamed for the decay of the state's agrarian culture and the erosion of southern values. In retrospect, it should be unsurprising that Georgians took Mary Fagan's murder so personally. Her fate mirrored their own. Industrialism had forced her family to leave idyllic Marietta for the slums of Atlanta. Industrialism had forced her to take a dangerous factory job. And now, if the prosecution was to be believed, an agent of industrialism had forever stolen her innocence and her life. Coming up, Leo Frank finally takes the witness stand himself. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. By mid-August of 1913, the trial of Leo Frank had lasted three weeks and had already become the longest-lasting trial in Georgian history. The public was determined to see justice for the murder of the 13-year-old Mary Fagan. Yet the jury had yet to hear testimony from the accused man. Leo Frank finally took the witness stand on August 18th. His statement was not made under oath which meant that he would not be subjected to questioning by the prosecution. <clears throat> Gentlemen of the jury, my name is Leo Frank. I was born in Cuero, Texas on April 17, 1884. At the age of three months, my parents moved to Brooklyn, New York. In the fall of 1902, I entered Cornell University. For nearly an hour, Leo Frank rambled about his personal history and the minutiae of his role at the National Pencil Company. To the spectators and jury, it must have seemed that he was doing everything in his power not to address the reason he was on the stand. But at long last, he finally turned his attention to the accusations that had been brought against him. Gentlemen, I was nervous. I was completely unstrung. Imagine yourself called from sound slumber in the early hours of the morning, whisked through the chill morning air without breakfast. To see that little girl on the dawn of womanhood so cruelly murdered, it was a scene that would have melted stone. Gentlemen, 
I know nothing whatsoever of the cause of the death of Mary Fagan and Connolly's statement as to his coming up and helping me dispose of the body, or that I had anything to do with her or to do with him on that day is a monstrous lie. His statement complete, Leo Frank stepped down from the witness stand. It was then that Solicitor Dorsey, the prosecutor on the case, began to call his final series of witnesses, a number of young women who had worked at the pencil factory. Murtis Cato, are you acquainted with the general character of Leo M. Frank prior to and including April 26, 1913? Yes. Was that character good or bad? Bad. How long have you worked at the National Pencil Company? Three and a half years. No further questions. The state calls Maggie Griffin, former employee of the National Pencil Company. Maggie Griffin, do you know the general character of Leo M. Frank as to his attitude towards women? Yes, I do. What is it? Bad. Mrs. Donegan, do you know Mr. Frank's character for lasciviousness? I do. How would you describe it? Bad. The state calls Nellie Pettis. Bad. Mary Davis. Bad. Estelle Winkle. Bad. Carrie Smith. Bad. A somber mood hovered over the courtroom as the last girl stepped down from the witness stand. Many of the girls had accused Leo Frank of being a perpetual flirt who often touched the girls, albeit in a non-sexual way, without their permission. Leo Frank's attorneys seemed shaken to their core. On August 25, 1913, the jury was dismissed for deliberation. Judge Roan called Hugh Dorsey and Luther Rosser to his podium. He feared that the atmosphere in and around the courtroom had become so hostile towards Leo Frank that they might attempt to lynch him if he was found innocent. All three men agreed that the defendant would not be present when the jury returned. It took less than four hours for them to reach a decision. Have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. We find the defendant guilty. The response was nothing short of extraordinary. Spectators leapt to their feet in applause while reporters dashed across the hall to phone their offices. The scene outside of City Hall was one of jubilant celebration. Hugh Dorsey was lifted onto the shoulders of two men and carried above the rejoicing crowd like a triumphant hero. Across the city, Leo and Lucille Frank were waiting for news in his cell at the Fulton County Jail. What's that sound? There's people yelling outside. You don't think. They can't have reached a verdict yet. Luther said it could take several days. Luther? What happened? I'm sorry I don't have better news. The jury has found you guilty. They have sentenced you to die. No! My God. Has this mob mentality rendered even the jury impervious to reason? We were never going to get a fair trial in this climate. We'll appeal it, of course. This is not over yet. <laughs> oh, Leo, what are we going to do? Be brave, my love. It doesn't matter what they say. I am as innocent today as I have always been. Everyone is going to see that. Someday. While Leo Frank's attorneys began preparing for what would be a long and arduous appeals process, news of his death sentence reverberated through Atlanta's Jewish community. 
From the outset, there was disagreement amongst the community over how to respond. Many feared that any public action would stoke the fires of anti-Semitism that seemed to have been awakened by Leo Frank's trial. But Leo Frank's closest friends and family believed that public support would be necessary if he was ever to receive justice. They quietly began efforts to recruit some of the nation's leading Jewish businessmen. Their greatest success was recruiting Adolf Ox, the owner of the New York Times. Ox became convinced that Leo Frank had been wrongfully convicted and threw the full strength of the New York Times into a crusade to clear his name. Throughout the rest of 1913, from June to December, the newspaper ran countless articles examining the case and the subsequent trial that had led to Leo Frank's conviction. In the North, public sentiment quickly turned in favor of the superintendent. Letters of support and donations to continue the investigation began pouring in from across the country. The response from Georgians couldn't have been more different. The New York Times campaign was seen as an unwanted intervention, yet another example of Northerners trying to tell them how to run things in their state. Thomas Watson, a populist firebrand publisher and attorney who had twice run for president, captured their frustrations in his newspaper, The Jeffersonian. Watson had followed the Mary Fagan case since its inception and had sided against Leo Frank from early on. Shortly following the publication of New York Times articles in defense of Leo Frank, Watson ferociously went toe-to-toe with Adolf Ox. He argued with a bluntly anti-Semitic rhetoric that the New York Times campaign was proof of a concerted effort by wealthy northern Jewish peoples to keep one of their own from receiving fair justice. Do the rich Jews want to create among the Gentiles of this country the same deep dislike which they have created everywhere else? If they continue their rancorous and villainous abuse of the people who wanted Leo Frank punished for this awful crime, they will raise a tempest which they cannot control. Is this lewd, loathsome murderer worth the price? For every article that argued for Leo Frank's innocence, Thomas Watson hit back with accusations of northern intervention and Jewish conspiracy, all too common among the anti-Semites of his day. This media frenzy highlighted the fundamental problem of this case, that opinions were formed from preordained and ignorant judgment, not from the rational logic of a thorough investigation. It seemed as though a lot more was on trial than the murder of a little girl. A cultural rhetoric was thrust under the microscope, a rhetoric that threatened to sow further discord between proud Georgian citizens and those they considered to be stuffy northerners. And with no voice of reason mediating the conflict, this resentment grew for months on end. By April of 1915, Leo Frank had been in prison for almost two years. His execution had been postponed three times, while his attorneys had repeatedly made appeals for a retrial. Leo Frank was encouraged by the attention he was receiving in the national press and remained confident that he would eventually be proven innocent. But one by one, his appeals had all failed. Now, his fate rested in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. Two Supreme Court justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes and Charles Evan, fought to approve Leo Frank's appeal. 
They argued that the frightening mob mentality of the general public had kept the jury from being impartial. They pointed to the fact that Leo Frank had been secreted away from the courthouse prior to hearing the verdict for his own safety as proof of the threatening atmosphere. Yet this argument was not enough to sway the rest of the court in Leo Frank's favor. In a 7-2 decision, the Supreme Court ruled against Leo Frank, eliminating all hope of his sentence being overturned. Lucille, I didn't know you were coming today. What's wrong? Leo, we have just heard from the Supreme Court. Justice Holmes made a beautiful speech in your favor, but they're not going to let us retry. But they... I... I'm... disappointed. But I will never suffer the death penalty. Truth will prevail. We'll go to Governor Slate and ask for a pardon. I've spoken to Luther. He says they'll never go for a pardon now. He thinks we should request a commutation to a life sentence. What? I am not going to beg. Leo. I am innocent and have been unjustly convicted. What I want is justice. Leo, please. What we need is time and the opportunity to prove your innocence later. A commutation is our only chance for either. You're right. Of course you're right. I'll tell them we should try. Leo Frank's execution was scheduled for June 22, 1915. His last hope was Georgian Governor John Slayton, who was set to leave office on June 26th, a mere four days after his planned execution. Slayton had mostly managed to keep his hands clean of the Leo Frank affair and had hoped to leave the question of a commutation to his successor. With the nation watching and all of Georgia determined that Leo Frank should hang, any action or intervention could be political suicide and certainly not how he had hoped to leave office. But Leo Frank's supporters gathered hundreds of thousands of letters and signatures begging Slayton to commute Leo Frank's sentence to life in prison. Among these was a letter from Judge Roan, written shortly before he passed away on March 23, 1915. After many months of continued deliberation, I am still uncertain of Frank's guilt. The execution of any person whose guilt has not been satisfactorily proven to the constituted authorities is too horrible to contemplate. I ask the governor to commute Frank's sentence to life imprisonment. This voice from the tomb, as Judge Roan's posthumous letter came to be known, was the final straw. Governor Slayton agreed to consider Leo Frank's case. On June 12th, a mere 10 days before Leo Frank was set to be executed, Governor Slayton began what would be the final hearing for Leo Frank's life. As in the trial, Solicitor General Dorsey argued for the prosecution. By this point, Luther Rosser had been replaced by a fresh team of lawyers, led by Sly Howard. In the opening moments of the hearing, Howard focused on a detail that had gone overlooked in Leo Frank's initial trial. Jim Connolly admitted that on the morning of April 26th, he went inside the elevator shaft on the basement floor and had a passage of his bowels. That night, when the officers arrived at the scene, they found his human stool in the bottom of the elevator shaft untouched. But that Sunday, in running the elevator down, the investigators smashed into the stool, and the smell of it revealed its existence. 
If Frank and Conley had brought the body down in the elevator on Saturday, as Jim Conley claims, it would have smashed the excrement then. This elevator, does it always continue all the way to the bottom or could it stop earlier? Your Excellency, this was disputed in the record, but the elevator could easily have stopped a few feet above the ground. I disagree. The record clearly shows that the elevator touched dirt. The responding officers state that there is nothing but dirt to stop it. It stops itself when it gets to the bottom. This is too important a detail to leave to the record. Let's take a short recess. I'm going to see this elevator myself. With the attorneys and detectives in tow, Governor John Slayton visited the massive granite structure where Mary Fagan had been murdered two years earlier. He inspected Leo Frank's office and the metal room where the blood and hair had been found. Finally, he descended into the basement, where he inspected the crime scene and the elevator shaft in question. He wrote it several times, testing and retesting, to see whether it was possible to stop the lift early. Each time, he came to the same result. That settles it. The elevator stops when it reached the bottom of the shaft, and not an inch earlier. Any disagreements? No, Governor. I quite agree. If the elevator was not used by Conley and Frank in taking the body to the basement, then the explanation of Conley cannot be accepted. With Conley's testimony proven false, the governor considered the other evidence used to accuse Leo Frank. This included the blood and hair found in the metal room, and Leo's nervous behavior when he was initially questioned about the murder. Of course, the blood and hair was never proven to have belonged to Mary, and both could have easily been explained by accidents other employees had previously had in the same room. Additionally, Leo's nervous behavior could have been due to the simple fact that he was woken up by police in the early morning to be questioned about a murder that had taken place in his own factory. After the hearing ended, Governor Slayton returned to his office to consider what he had heard. He spent several days poring over the evidence and trial records before finally coming to a decision. On June 21st, one day before his scheduled execution, Leo Frank was moved in the dead of night from the Fulton County Prison to a more secure state penitentiary in Milledgeville. On the morning of June 22nd, Governor Slayton released a 20-page statement explaining his decision. I can endure misconstruction, abuse, and condemnation, but I cannot stand the constant companionship of an accusing conscience which would remind me that I, as governor of Georgia, failed to do what I thought to be right, acting, therefore, in accordance with what I believe to be my duty under the circumstances of this case. It is ordered that the sentence in the case of Leo M. Frank is commuted from the death penalty to imprisonment for life. While newspapers across the country applauded Governor Slayton's bravery, Atlantans responded with shock and fury. A violent mob descended on his mansion that same evening. The state militia was called in, resulting in a massive brawl and dozens of arrests. Meanwhile, another mob in Marietta hanged and burned an effigy of the governor in front of the courthouse. A sign proclaimed, John M. Slayton, king of the Jews and traitor governor of Georgia. The next day, Slayton headed to City Hall for the inauguration of his successor, Nat Harris. As soon as the ceremony was over, the crowd of spectators began to show signs of turning violent. As Slayton was climbing into his car, a man rushed out of the crowd, swinging a lead pipe. 
Fortunately, a nearby member of the National Guard caught the man's hand just in time to deflect the blow from connecting with Slayton's skull. The ex-governor was pushed into the car and whisked away to Terminal Station. He and his wife boarded a train to New York City and didn't look back. Coming up, angry Georgians react to the news of Leo Frank's commutation by taking matters into their own hands. And now, back to our story. On June 21st, 1915, Governor John Slayton shocked and enraged Georgians by commuting Leo Frank's death sentence to life in prison. After he had been declared guilty of the brutal murder of the 13-year-old Mary Fagan, Georgians longed to see him pay for her life with his life. While Leo Frank's supporters celebrated, Atlantans fumed. Tom Watson's fury and hateful anti-Semitic rhetoric reached a pitch hitherfore unseen in his papers. Jewish money has debased us, bought us, and sold us, and laughs at us. Hereafter, let no man reproach the South with lynch law. Let him remember the unendurable provocation and let him say whether lynch law is not better than no law at all. Tom Watson was now publicly calling on his readers to enact racist vigilante justice against Leo Frank. The public's anti-Semitic outrage soon became so pervasive that it even permeated the walls of the Milledgeville Penitentiary. A rumor spread through the prison that a mob was going to start shooting indiscriminately through the windows in the hopes of hitting Leo Frank. An inmate named William Crean decided that the best way to avoid such an attack would be to do the mob's job for them. On July 18th, Crean attacked Leo Frank in his cell, slashing his throat with a knife stolen from the prison's kitchen. The prison doctors narrowly managed to stop the blood flow and stitch the wound in time to save Leo Frank. It would not be the last attempt on his life. Around 10 o'clock on the night of August 16, 1915, a caravan of seven cars bearing 25 masked and armed men arrived outside the prison. Who goes there? The Knights of Mary Fagan. This is a state penitentiary. Turn back now. We're here to carry out the state's justice on Leo M. Frank. Open the gates and no one else has to die. The guards obeyed, opening the gates to allow the men inside. They met no resistance as they made their way to Leo Frank's cell. Turn on that light. Which room's Leo Frank? Who are you? Get up. May I at least get dressed? You won't need clothes where you're going. The masked men seized Leo Frank and led him to one of the cars waiting outside. A second group had already managed to cut the prison's phone lines to delay the police response. They were in and out of the prison in less than 10 minutes without ever having to fire a single shot. They raced through the night, taking a winding route through the back roads of Georgia. Early on the morning of August 17, 1915, they arrived at the outskirts of Marietta, not far from Mary Fagan's childhood home. They led Leo Frank through the woods to a quiet grove. One of the men draped a thick manila rope from the high branch of an ash tree, 
while another prepared the table for him to stand on. Throughout this, Leo Frank remained calm and quiet, only speaking to mutter a brief prayer in German, and when the men tried to force a final confession. Leo Frank, you stand accused of the murder of Mary Fagan and have been sentenced to be hung by the neck until dead. As the state has abdicated its responsibility, it falls to us, the Knights of Mary Fagan and the people of Atlanta, to see it done. Is there anything you would like to say before your execution? No. Will you not admit the truth, even now? Will you not confess? Did you kill the Fagan girl? I think more of my wife and my mother than I do of my own life. So be it. The table was kicked from beneath Leo Frank's feet. The fall did not break his neck, and he struggled wordlessly for several minutes while the wound in his throat reopened and the blood flowed down his body. After a few minutes of agonizing pain, Leo Frank was dead. It did not take long for word of the lynching to spread, and people all around the state rushed to the scene of the murder to revel in their morbid and perverted sense of justice. The first men at the scene were locals from Marietta, they stood around in awed silence, gawking at Leo Frank's limp body. Then the cars from Atlanta began to arrive in droves. Whole families and groups of teenagers made their way through the woods until a lively and sizable crowd filled the grove. People took turns being photographed with the body. One of these photos would later become a famous postcard, a grim reminder of the joy people could take in the death of a potentially innocent man. Eventually, Leo Frank's body was returned to Atlanta, where it was collected by his wife, Lucille. He was buried in Brooklyn on August 20th, 1915. On November 25th, 1915, three months after Leo Frank's lynching, the men who had called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan met atop Stone Mountain. They set fire to a large wooden cross and donned white robes and hoods. This event would mark the new dawn of the Ku Klux Klan, after it had been dormant for over 40 years. None of the men who participated in the lynching of Leo Frank were ever charged, though it was a poorly kept secret that their ranks included several leading members of the Marietta community. Hugh Dorsey, the prosecuting attorney in Leo Frank's trial, became governor of Georgia in 1916. Tom Watson, the fiery publisher who stoked Georgian fears of Jewish intervention, became a U.S. senator. Jim Conley served one year on a chain gang for accessory to the murder. Then, in 1982, the case changed forever when a former employee of the National Pencil Factory named Alonzo Mann announced on his deathbed that he wished to confess a secret that had haunted him his entire life. In a sworn affidavit made in front of a team of reporters and several lie detectors, Alonzo Mann claimed that he had seen Jim Conley carrying the body of Mary Fagan near the trapdoor to the factory basement on April 26, 1913. Conley had threatened Alonzo, promising that he would kill him if he divulged what he had seen. On March 11, 1986, the state of Georgia issued a posthumous pardon to Leo Frank because it had failed to protect him while in state custody. It declined to officially absolve him of the crime, 
arguing that while Alonzo Mann's testimony verified that Jim Conley was involved, it did not conclusively prove that Leo Frank was innocent. The murder of Mary Fagan remains a hotly debated topic to this day. Many historians now argue that the evidence suggests that Jim Conley was the most likely culprit. Others, including the family of Mary Fagan, maintain that Leo Frank was fairly convicted and the true killer. Personally, I agree with the historians on this one. I think Jim Conley killed Mary Fagan in a violent attempt to steal her money. Jim lied to the police multiple times, and a witness even saw him carrying Mary's body. I agree. Jim Conley's connection to the crime is far more material than anything the police had to connect Leo Frank. And Conley had too great of a motivation to frame Leo for a murder that he had committed. After that, the public's anti-Semitism carried Leo Frank to death row. Whatever you believe, there's no doubting the impact of this 13-year-old factory girl. Her brutal slang showed just how dangerous the public can be when spurred into action by misinformation and widespread prejudice. It was a landmark real-world expression of the importance of the presumption of innocence within a court of law and that presumption's necessity within the general public. It showed that the truth should be pursued before the pursuit of justice, because in this case, and many others, people are all too willing to allow their own biases and prejudices to cloud their interpretations of the evidence. The tragic tale of Mary Fagan led to an ever-worsening spiral of tragic action as the murder enraged a state, captivated a country, spawned a hate group, and led to the lawless execution of a potentially innocent man. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Andrew Kelleher. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Sky King, Kai Jordan, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, Manib Rahman, and Julian Smith. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy.